Well, good morning. Hey, I heard you. I don't know. It was kind of quiet, but I heard you. Welcome to Cottonwood Bible Church. We're glad to have you with us this morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time, if you wouldn't mind filling out the white card in the seat back in front of you, put that in the offering plate as it goes by later. That way we have a record of your visit, especially you. Yeah, you need to put... <laughs> so fill that out, and we would appreciate that. Some announcements this morning. Ministry opportunities. If you missed our Bible study hour, uh, 9.15 is when we start... Bible study and Sunday school class. And so if you're interested in being here, come at 9.15. We'll make sure you get into the right place. 10 a.m. Snack Fellowship. Next door we have our snacks. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed that this morning. And then 10.30 this morning is where our service is, where you're at now. And then 5 p.m. Ladies Bible Study. I forgot to ask. Yes. Okay. The Ladies Bible Study is a go. So if you're interested in that Ladies Bible Study at 5 o'clock tonight, you can see Miss Judy. And then, where is it at? There it is. Wednesday Gospel Care Community Group here at the church building. That is not going to happen this week, so no gospel group this week. Normally we have a meal together, we bring our favorite dish, and we share a meal together, but not this week. So because of Thanksgiving, have a happy Thanksgiving, no gospel group this week. So, And then in, uh, if you look in your bulletin, there's also the Hanging of the Greens, though. That is happening this week, this Friday, 5.30 to 8.30, Hanging of the Greens. Here we will begin with a fellowship meal of pizza and salad and drinks all provided and then decorate the main meeting place, the main place here. Um, that, that'll be Friday, November 27th, so this Friday, 5.30 to 8.30. So plan to be here. We can use all the help we can get, so all the help we can get for sure. And then next, ministry opportunity. Jim's going to talk about that. Yeah, nice statement from my father-in-law. He's all, hey, can we just come for the pizza? That's my father-in-law for you. Yeah. They just arrived Friday. He's leaving today. <laughs> Didn't know that, did you, Dad? <laughs> nah, who's laughing now? Anyways. We'll, we'll take you. That's you can right. come on over to our house. That's we'll right. take you. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. Anyways. There's, for there's, no, pizza, there's no pizza at my house, though. Yeah, there's no pizza at his house. That's right. I just want to point out, just for a moment... Roy Worthily, who was a pastor of this church back in the 70s, part of purchasing this property that we're looking at and part of building this building, he's here with us this morning. Roy, kind of wave that you're right there. And his wife's here too. So it's kind of neat. I'm like, hey, oh, that's great. So anyways, so praise the Lord that are here visiting with us this morning. Uh, uh, some things I need to make mention uh, ministry opportunities uh, for all you members there's those sheets back there uh, a list of how you can minister and serve uh, the body of Christ here uh, at Cottonwood Bible Church um, uh, sign up if you would and you might say hey I, I was doing this um, but am I not doing this anymore exactly uh, we're, we're starting a clean slate so if you want to continue to minister in that way feel free to do that you can you continue to do that if not, you want to sign up for something else, feel free to do that as well. There's no pressure uh, from me as you have to do this, you have to do that. So please feel that way. Don't feel that way that there's pressure from me. If there's something else... In and just don't forget to be communicate amongst each other too. If you see something that you yes. want that somebody else signed up for, you know. Yeah, talk, talk with each communicate, other. Yeah. You, know, maybe. you can duke it out, you know, outside. Please don't do it inside. Uh, <clears throat> so anyways, that, just want to make mention of that for the ministry opportunities for 2016. And then also, we have nominations... Um, 
Michael Matthews and Travis have been nominated as deacons. And remember, deacons are not a separate authority uh, in the church. Deacons maintain unity in the church. They take care of the needs within the body, and they free up so the pastors can shepherd and care for God's people. Uh, so that's the, the, the role of deacons biblically that we're talking about. They're not a separate authority figure or any type of thing in the church. Yet still, it is an office, an important office. So uh, please be praying for our nominations, Michael Matthews and Travis Melton, as well as Daniel Barch, who should be coming back home this week, Wednesday, coming back from India this, past, this coming week. Um, and then for Daniel Barch as church clerk, and then also uh, Ellen Daynard as our treasurer for 2016. Um, and then also um, lots of things coming up for over the next uh, month uh, members meeting is Sunday December 13th uh, so mark the, your calendars for that also members and, and those of you attending visiting uh, mark your calendars for December 20th Mary Ellen Chase um, who is a missionary in Israel working with Russian Jews she's going to be here she's going to talk with us about the ministry that she's been doing there in Israel that's going to be great. Actually, that's the Sunday I'm going to do a biography sermon as well. I'm going to do, you know, I normally do a biography sermon since it's missions month. As Southern Baptists, we focus on uh, December for, on international missions, and we give towards that specifically. So I like to do a biography sermon as to how God's working and what God's doing in the world, and then as well as for us to be thinking about missions. So I like to do biography sermons, so I'm going to do that that Sunday, December 20th. Um, uh, so just mark your calendars for that. So um, anything else that in reference in announcements? Right, I was going to talk about that too. Um, I, you know what? I'm just going to save that for because I have it written in my notes to save that for them. Um, um, but uh, again, a, a couple other things I always want to make mention in our announcement time. Uh, if you're interested or you're thinking about becoming a member of Cottonwood Bible Church, what does it mean to become a member? We do a short little uh, membership class, or the ABCs of CBC. It gives you kind of the nuts and bolts of Cottonwood Bible Church, just so you can see what we're about. Um, and anybody can take that, whether you want to look at membership or you want to pray for that a little bit later on. You know, it's for anybody to look at that and to observe that and to go through the ABCs of CBC. So talk with me about that. Oh, I should mention too. Um, uh, we're, we're, it's important for us uh, to be baptized. We believe in baptism of a believer when somebody professes faith in Christ. They, they uh, in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, they get baptized. And we're actually going to have a baptism in a couple weeks, a couple of Sundays. Uh, Aaron Melton is going to get baptized uh, in a couple of uh, Sundays. So mark your calendars, December 6th. That's the, the, the day we talked about. It's going to work for you guys, right? The okay. 6th, yep. December 6th, so mark your calendars for that. And if you're interested in baptism, speak with me. Maybe we'll dunk you then, too. You know, you never know. Um, yeah, there's, there's room. Yeah, there's room. Yeah, <laughs> there is. So, and then, again, what, what's even most important to us is the gospel. We want to be a church that is shaped, that is influenced, that's focused on the gospel. That's the essential. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Repent and trust in Him alone. That's what's most important. And if you're here, you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, you want to know more about what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, feel free to talk with anybody here. You can speak with any member here, by the way. But feel free to also talk with me. I'm available after the service there in the back in the lobby. You can speak with me about that. So I think those are all the announcements that I have.
I think that's it. Uh, and uh, if you missed any of it, most of it is in your bulletin, along with also with our website and email addresses and everything else, phone numbers, addresses, all that is in your bulletin. There's a lot we talked about this morning, so if you didn't get a bulletin, they're in the back. I believe that is all of our announcements, so let's stand as we sing.
just please bow our heads and pray with me as we praise our great God. Heavenly Father, this morning we reflect upon and praise you for your holiness. As the seraphim who are gathered in your presence say, we also proclaim that you are holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is so great that at your presence, even the doors and the thresholds of the temple were shaken at your presence. And Isaiah exclaimed, Woe to me, I am undone. Your glory is such that no one could gaze upon it and live. You are holy in your heaven where you dwell, and your holiness is manifest in everything that you do, whether it's in creation, the giving of the law, or in your judgments. We should be humbled by the awesomeness of your majestic holiness, but instead of being humbled, we often think too highly of ourselves and think much less of you than we ought. We tend to compare ourselves to those around us, and we convince ourselves that we are pretty good. But if we compare ourselves to the ultimate standard, we are morally and spiritually destroyed. We are called to be holy as you are holy. And Lord, I pray for us that we might dwell upon your holiness and that we would first look to Christ as our holiness. And I pray that we would settle, or not settle for that matter, for good enough, but that the intercession of Christ might assure us that an increasing degree of holiness is possible thanks to his grace and his power. Give us a love for you that is always accompanied by a love of and a call to holiness. It is in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Please, if you would, remain standing. We're going to read together 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Please be seated.
to a sinner's cross. You broke my shame and sinfulness. You rose again, victorious. Faithfulness none can deny. The storm and through the fire, there is truth that sets me free. Jesus Christ, who lives in me, you are stronger, you are stronger. Sin is broken, you have saved me. It is written, Christ is risen, Jesus, you are Lord of all. No beginning and no end, you're my hope and my defense. Came to seek and save the lost, you paid it all upon the cross. You are stronger, you are stronger, sin is broken, you have saved me. It is written, Christ is risen. Jesus, you are Lord of all. Let's stand. You are stronger. You are stronger. Sin is broken. You have saved me. It is written. Christ is risen. Jesus, you are Lord of all.
like us otherness godness set apart from us the creation creatures and you are the creator we humbly come into your presence Holy triune God. 
And yet we come with great confidence that you love us. Not because we're lovable. Not because we're worthy. Not because you're a God who loves unconditionally. No. Love us because of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God who took on flesh, who lived, who died, who rose. We put our trust in Him alone. And so you see, not us, but Him. You see a people united to Him. So now we stand before you, holy and blameless, only because of Jesus Christ. And you hear us when we pray. It's the only reason why you hear us when we pray because of Jesus Christ and we pray for Travis and Karen we pray that Travis would embrace the responsibility of a deacon maintaining that unity in your church caring for your people as they already do and taking on things that helps me to serve your people. We pray that they will continue to love your people, your church, which it shows that they are abiding in the light, obeying your commands. Give them assurance each day that their sins are forgiven, that they know you and have overcome the evil one. We pray for their marriage. We display the gospel. Grace and compassion towards each other, outdoing each other in gracious ways, fulfilling their roles. Travis is a leader with great love. Uh, Karen joyfully submitting to him in all things. And we pray that all three of their boys, one who's a man, one is becoming a man. These three love the Lord Jesus Christ and worship Him alone. We pray for another church at this time. We lift up Summit Bible Church dear to our hearts as Eric and Lori Woods. May they as a church take refuge in you, save them from the pursuits of the evil one. He, he wants to destroy them, be their shield, that they'll be a church that is unified under the gospel giving thanks to you according to your righteousness, singing praises to your name, Lord Most High. And we pray specifically for Eric. Give him wisdom, grace, love for Lori, for Zach, thank you that he's home, for Victoria, for Paisley, for your people. Direct them, give them guidance, we pray. We pray for those in our government. We pray at this time for the U.S. Supreme Court justices. John Roberts, Selena Kagan, Antonin Scalia, Anthony Kennedy, Clarence Thomas, Ruth Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Samuel Alito, 
Sonia Sotomayor. We pray they'll judge according to righteousness and justice, upholding the Constitution, not their own biases, not deciding what is true, but to acknowledge truth. We graciously say they've been foolish this past year in their decisions, so they need the light of your word to decide in true knowledge and wisdom. They need the fear of Christ because that's the beginning of wisdom. Be gracious in that way to them, we pray. And God, we pray for the Syrian refugees. Give wisdom to our representatives in the vital decision between stewardship and trusting your sovereignty. But for the refugees, we pray you would open hearts to the gospel. They would see that Islam is a sham, a doctrine of demons, and those who follow Allah hate them and want them killed. Those who love the Lord Jesus Christ want to see them follow Jesus Christ and care for them. And as opportunities arise for us, help us to be willing to reach out with grace and compassion alongside wisdom. We would build gospel relationships with gospel-motivated service towards them. And for us who are here today, continue to give us courage to proclaim, to live your gospel in each situation that you place us in. And we can pray this in the holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. you would take your Bibles and go to the book of Acts or take your devices and go to the book of Acts chapter 6 excuse me 17 we're going to look at starting in verse 16 chapter 17 starting in verse 16 if you're visiting with us you can pull that black Bible out in the chair in front of you and go to page 107, go towards the back, page 107, 107, and you'll find Acts 17. We're going to look at verse 16 through 34. 16 through 34 this morning. Probably one of the most talked about passages in all the Bible. There's actually books written on this particular passage. Numerous books and articles written on verses 16 through 34 of Acts 17. We'll try and get this done in one certain. That'll be interesting. Hello. Hello. Was this on? It went out. Didn't it cut out? Did it? No? No, it did. Okay, I'm going, we're going crazy. Okay, so. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. 
So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearers and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, maybe know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming for you're bringing some strange things to our ears we want to know therefore what these things mean now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new and Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said men of Athens I observe that you are very religious in all respects while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God what therefore you worship in ignorance this I proclaim to you verse 24 the God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said for we also are his offspring 29 being then the offspring of God we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and thought of man therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some sneered but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joining him believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagites, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. From grocery shelves to pop culture, a century of Coca Cola bottles. It's the title of the article. Thursday, November 19th. This past week, Coca-Cola celebrated a century of Coca-Cola bottle. Sold in over 200 countries. Flashback, says the article, to 1915, when a bottle of Coca-Cola just cost a nickel. My father was 20 years old at that time, I think. I couldn't resist, sorry, Dad. As the soft drink gained in popularity, it faced a growing number of competitors, people trying to steal their logo. So according to Coca-Cola historian Ted Ryan, that's a Coca-Cola historian? That's kind of weird. It decided to come up with packaging that couldn't be duplicated. Ryan says this, quote, The company issued a creative brief. It was wonderfully simple, that creative brief. And that went to eight glass companies across America. Workers at the Root Glass Company in 
Terre Haute, Indiana, if I'm saying that right, got that request and began flipping through the encyclopedia at the local library, landing on Cocopod. Though not an ingredient of the soda, they designed their bottle based on the pods, Cocopods, ribs and bulgy middle. It won over Coke executives in Atlanta and would go on to receive its own trademark, spur collections, and earn Coca-Cola an iconic image that made it a mainstay of Americana for a century. So much so that if I were to hold up a bottle just like that, what do you immediately think of? Coca-Cola. It's so much ingrained in part of our culture. 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 A way of life for a group of people. Behaviors, beliefs, values, attitudes, ideas. Coke. It's ingrained. It's part of our culture. It's, it's how we live. It's how we think. It's how we behave. And we started last week how we must engage the culture with the gospel. And I'm just carrying over the title from last week, Engage the Culture with the Gospel. This is part two. Because it flows over this title into this passage, Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Engage the culture with the gospel. Now we're going to do some review in just a moment. I said a few moments ago that this passage is probably one of the most important passages in the New Testament. And definitely in the book of Acts, possibly in the New Testament. There are books written on this, articles written on this. There is a, a thick book that I uh, didn't read through this whole week, about 50 pages though. And part of this book deals with this passage. Greg Bonson wrote this book called Van Til's Apologetic, 760 pages worth. So, as I'm preaching through this passage, questions might come up in your mind. From last week, I just, I, just from last week's message, I had five questions from last week's message. So, I'm, I'm assuming, given the nature of this text, there might be more questions about this passage. So, this is what we're going to do. So here's your title, Engage the Culture with the Gospel, part two. Text your questions to my cell phone. So write down my cell phone if you want to put questions. This is my cell phone number. And while I'm preaching, if questions come up, text me those questions. And then next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the questions that you text to me and I'm going to deal with those questions next week. I'm going to deal with the five I had last week because they coincide with this passage too. And any other questions that you have, you can text those to me. Okay? This is my cell phone number. I'll leave it up there for a while. You can write that down on your notes or somewhere else. And as I'm preaching, if questions come up, please text those to me. And then I'll deal with those as best as I can next Sunday. So that's going to be the message next Sunday. The message next Sunday, which I think is in your bulletin, a Q&A, I'm going to answer those questions as best as I can for you. Give it, again, give it the nature and the importance of this text and as we go through it you'll understand why I'll give you a few more moments nine two last week I proposed that we engage our pop culture culture with the gospel whether it be with those familiar with the Bible or those totally unfamiliar with it this goes from Muslims 
Jehovah Witnesses, atheists, different spectrums all over the place, all over the map, Taoist, Shinto, Sikh, Hindus, Buddhists, agnostics, anyone. I propose we engage our culture with the gospel, whether they're familiar with the Bible or not. Now what, is it, what does it mean to engage? What do we mean by that? Engage to establish a meaningful connection or contact or, or cause someone to become involved in. So we want to establish a meaningful connection with them with the gospel. We want to establish a meaningful contact with them with the gospel. That's what we want to do. That's, that's, that's our objective. Now, this is what God did with us. That's why we're doing this. There's also another reason why, but the motivation behind this is what God did with us in the gospel. In the gospel, God engaged with our world by becoming like us. I mean, Jesus will forever be God-man. There will never be a time where God will not be connected with humanity. That's how much He is engaged with our culture. He incarnated Himself. And so in the same way, we must incarnate ourselves with the culture, with the gospel. That's what God did with us. That's where you have Jesus becoming man and taking on flesh, living, dying, rising, Repent and believe. That's the gospel. Now, why can, are we able to engage with unsaved people with the gospel? Why? Because of our point of contact. What's our point of contact? Everyone has a sense of deity. Everyone believes in the true God. Everyone. Everyone believes in the true God. Everyone. Everyone believes it. Even whether you're talking about the atheist... Or the Muslim. Now I'm not talking about their God. I'm talking about the Christian God. The God of the Bible. That's the God they believe. But they suppress it. They spit at it. They suppress it and then they exchange it. They suppress it and then they exchange it. It's like default all the time. This is why we're able to engage with them. Another question... How do we engage with Him? This is all review. We were talking about this last week. How do we engage? We reason. We explain. We prove or demonstrate. We proclaim. We persuade towards the gospel. Use God's word with all our listeners. Everyone. We use God's word. We use the scriptures. The Bible. Whether it's the atheist or the Muslim. Whether it's the agnostic or the Shintoist we engage them with the gospel we give them the scriptures how did Paul address a purely Gentile audience we're going to talk about this pagans, pantheists um, agnostics how do you engage that culture with the gospel the same way he did for the Jews man he used the scriptures as his ultimate starting point. His point of contact was the fact that they truly believed in the one true God. But it's marred. 
when it's all said and done, at the end of the day, what are our applications to this text? I'm going to give you the applications now and I'm going to give you at the end of the message. When it all comes down to it, we're going to look at all these different things in this passage. And you're going to be engaging with me in this passage. I'm going to establish a connection with you. When it's all said and done, it comes down to three different applications. One, humans are totally unable to embrace the truth of Christianity. You've got to get this. They're totally unable to embrace the truth of Christianity. Two, we must give a consistent and yet a gracious proclamation of the gospel. We must give a consistent and yet gracious proclamation of the gospel. Number three, as we speak the gospel, we must firmly rely, tenaciously cling to the grace of God. Because you won't convince them. God needs to do a work in their heart, the heart that's hardened to the truth. It's by His grace that He saves sinners. So at the end of the day, as we look through this, when it's all said and done, what's the point? Here. They're unable to embrace the truth of Christianity. But we must give a consistent, gracious proclamation of the gospel. And as we're speaking this gospel, we rely firmly, we hold tenaciously to God's grace, knowing that His grace will open their heart, change their will, and they'll run, they'll run into the arms of Jesus. So those are our three applications. And again, I'll put those up there later on at the end of our message. So if you're writing those down, you'll see them again. Let's get into our passage. Who was Paul speaking to? Pagans, pantheists, and agnostics. Oh, that's a great audience now. Verse 16. He's waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was being provoked within him. He was beholding a city full of idols. Athens, the philosophical center of the ancient world. Four major schools, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno, from where you get the Stoics, was known for their idolatry of the masses. They place high, high value on knowledge. And they are preoccupied with the latest fads, the latest ideas, as we'll see in verse 21. Paul was vexed, is what the word means. He was disturbed. Annoyed over all the idols. Notice 17. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews and the God fearers, and he went to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So he went to the synagogue to speak with the Jews and God fearers, but he also went to the marketplace. Ah. In the Greco Roman world, the marketplace was the hub of urban life. An equivalent, maybe the mall, I guess. It was a center for commerce and, and trade, sharing ideas. The marketplace was just lined with idols everywhere. And here he encountered Greek philosophers. Now, now I just want to just point something out real quick to you. 
Paul is not going to use anger, ridicule, sarcasm. He's not going to give names, name calling. He's not going to do that. He's going to be gracious in his defense of the faith. So, good look at verse 18. He, he encounters these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They're conversing with him. Who are these people? Stoics followed Zeno. They were pantheists. What's a pantheist? God's in everything. God's in these flowers. God's in this wall. God's in this thing. God's in this microphone. God's in the plates. God's in the pulpit. God's in your spits. God's in everything. Pantheists. And the themes that they held to. Reason. A world state. Self-sufficiency. Obedience. Discipline. Live in harmony through logic and discipline. Those were Stoics. And there's a lot more Stoics than Epicureans. Who were these Epicureans? They were agnostic secularists. So with the Stoics, you might have just gods all over the place. Epicureans, they're secular agnostics. Uh, one Epicurean, uh, here's a quote from them. Nothing to fear in God. Nothing to feel in death. Good pleasure can be attained. Evil pain can be endured. End quote. That's an Epicurean. They pursued happiness apart from divine intervention with humanity. Now some might say, okay, yeah, maybe God did that, but He doesn't care about us. Almost like deists. Like God creates us and then He doesn't care. Certainly there's not going to be no retribution from God either. These are the ones he's dealing with. Notice verse 18. So we're saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And they said it in an English accent. What would this idle babbler used to say? I don't know, maybe they didn't do it like that. But anyways, idle babbler, it means actually scrap monger. Picking up bits of info, acting like he knows what he's talking about, but he has no idea what he's talking about. That type of guy. You know, like people you see on TV. Nothing but a show-off. And notice the snootiness of the Athens, of, of the Athenians. Who is this guy? Who, who the heck are you? He's a plagiarist. But notice some others... He seems to be a proclaimer, a proclaimer of strange deities because he was proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. Literally, gospeling, euangelion, gospeling Jesus and the resurrection. So, all these ideas, these strange things. Not, he's not saying that Jesus is a God and the resurrection is a God. not saying that. It's a new religion, new ideas. Basically, they had no clue what he was talking about. So, notice verse 19. They brought him. They didn't arrest him. It wasn't like hostile. Brought him to the Areopagus. Latin is Mars Hill. Saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know therefore what these things mean. Quite possibly they brought him before the council of the Areopagus. There was actually a council. And this council had great power. They would try crimes. They regulated education, lectures, morality, cults. Maybe he was before the council. Luke doesn't tell us. 
They discuss matters of interest and curiosity. Notice verse 21. They always want to know what's a new strange fad. Hey, what's really cool right now? Let's talk about that. That's what they want to know. Now, 17 through, uh, chapter 17, 22 through 31. I want, I want us to land here. going to be here most of our time. First, I want to give you just kind of the points. Run you through this as well. Different questions and then answers to those questions. What did Paul use when he's going to talk with them? He used the scriptures. How did Paul use it? He reasoned, he explained, he proved, or demonstrated, he proclaimed, he persuaded. Why did Paul use it? Because of the point of contact. So I want to give those to you right off the bat. And then as we're going through the passage here, I'm going to give you some implications that we're going to look at. Implications. So when Paul is saying this and this and this, what are the implications of, of what he says to the Athenians there at the Areopagus? I'm going to give you, there's seven of them, seven implications from our passage. By the way, I attribute much of this to Greg Bonson in his article on this very passage in Acts 17, 16 through 34. So let's begin. Stand in the middle of the Areopagus, verse 22. Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. That word, very religious, two words, is actually one word in the Greek. It's weird. There's no English equivalent. Literally, it's from the Greek, fearers of the supernatural spirits. It can be used in a positive way, or it can be used in a negative way. Well, how's it being used? I don't know. And scholars debate, oh, it's being used positive, oh, it's being used negative. Nobody really knows. And you know what? I think Paul did that on purpose. He was being vague on purpose with them. Notice he says, I was passing through, examining objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God, but therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Something we need to understand. Humans are made to be worshipers, specifically worshipers of the living God but it's been degraded by sin. In rebellion, they pervert the knowledge they have of God. And in this way, they become ignorantly foolish or willfully ignorant. So notice he says, in your idol to an unknown God, which they worship in ignorance, he's telling them something. First, he's telling them that they admitted their knowledge of God or groping after God. They're admitting their ignorance of God and their perversion of God. And just that title to an unknown God for this idol. Their knowledge of God, their ignorance of Him, and their perversion of Him. So they're aware of God and yet they're also ignorant. And I'll be using this phrase, culpable ignorance. In other words, they're guilty. Again, if you have questions, text those to my phone, please. So what you worship in ignorance, I'm going to proclaim to you. In other words, I'm going to tell you the absolute truth of what you worship in ignorance. Here's the absolute, solid, real truth, and it's completely reasonable. So notice here, friends, Paul was not building some common ground with them, but using the point of contact, their sense of deity, which is marred by their rebellion, I mean, how do, you, how do you gain common ground with someone that you have absolutely nothing in common with, spiritually? Which I'll talk about in a moment. 
And this rebellion is going to call them to repentance. Now I'm going to move us now into, there's, there's four implications that we see here from just these few verses. Four implications. Four implications. Here's the first one, number one. Every human has a knowledge of God, the one true God. But that knowledge is degraded by sin. Sinners have a sense of deity that condemns them, but they do not have the sense of deity that can save them. You might say, I don't understand that. Let me give you an illustration, which I think you understand. The devil, who's a real person, does he have a knowledge of God? Yes. Does he have a true knowledge of God? Yes. Does he have the true knowledge of God that saves him? No. Same thing with every human on the, upon this planet. Same thing. Those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, they have a true knowledge of God. They have a knowledge of God. They have a true knowledge of God, but not the kind of knowledge that can save them. Just like the evil one. So every human has a knowledge of God, the one true God, but that knowledge is degraded by sin. Implication number one. Implication number two. This clear knowledge of God from creation, from logic, morality, it's suppressed. Resulting in culpable ignorance. They take that truth and they suppress it. They take this truth they know about God and they suppress it. And actually they exchange it for a lie because of their depravity, because of their sinfulness. Implication number three. Thus, the mindset and philosophy of the unsaved, which produces only ignorant foolishness, by the way, is completely and totally contrary to that of a believer. Unbeliever? Believer. Non-Christian? Christian. Unsaved? Saved the mindset and philosophy between these two are, are diametrically opposed to each other. Totally opposed. You don't build common ground with them. There is no common ground. What does Baal have anything to do with God? Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Nothing. What does the devil have something to do with God? Nothing. They're diametrically opposed. This clear knowledge of God, they suppress it. So therefore, we have no common ground with them. I mean, it's, it's complete and total contrary to Christians, believers, followers of Jesus. We're totally contrary to them. Uh, Greg Bonson says this: the believe, un, excuse me, the unbeliever's response to God's revelation is a deliberately self-serving and self-protecting effort to act out being what he desperately wants to be, an unbeliever. People want to be totally autonomous from God in every way. Fourth implication, number four. So our point of contact is the inescapable knowledge of the true God that all people have in virtue of the fact that they have been made in His image and His revelation is given through nature and history. They know that, but they suppress it. They know that, but they want nothing to do with it. Because as soon as they say they have something to do with it, then they have to realize that they're accountable to this God whom they must serve. 
and they don't want to serve him. They want to serve themselves. Right? That's why this knowledge of God, you need the right glasses on. You need special revelation to see clearly. Or else you can't see clearly. Everything's blurry. Now notice what Paul does now in verse 24. He gives us a synopsis of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Even Isaiah 42 verse 5. The gracious God who made everything, the world and all things in it, Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. 25. He is not served by human hands, as though He needed anything. He Himself gives life to all. Breath to all. He gives all things. How can God be contained in temples made with hands when He's the maker of everything? Plus, humans don't serve Him as if God needs something because He is the one source of all life and breath. He needs nothing from us. God is a creator who is not contained in a temple, not reflected by some idol. He's the sustainer who sustains all creation and therefore He is self-sufficient. We need Him. Notice, He's the creator, sustainer, self-sufficient sovereign, and father of all. He's going to mention this. Everything, everybody comes from Adam. We're his creatures. We're responsible to him. Thus, he has the right to be our judge, to tell us what to do and how to worship him on his terms. Humans are dependent on him. Notice, every statement Paul makes is rooted in the Bible, the Old Testament, in Genesis. Paul was given him scripture. His ultimate starting point was the authority of the revelation of Jesus Christ here for what Paul's doing is the Old Testament. Which leads to the fifth implication. We as Christians take the Bible, God's revelation authority as our starting point and the controlling factor in all our reasoning with the unsaved. Whether they know the Bible or not. Friends, this is self-attesting to itself. This is self-authoritative. This is. It's the standard. I mean, you don't say to a builder who has his tape measure, you don't say, you know, did you get that tape measure from Home Depot? Because those tape measures from Home Depot, you know, they're kind of squirrely. I'm not sure about those tape measures from Home Depot. You don't do that. A tape measure is a tape measure. Whether you get it from Home Depot or Ace, it might be more expensive at one or the other. A couple bucks more. What are they doing? They're trying to rip me off. That's true. But a tape measure is a tape measure. It's self-attesting. You don't question a tape measure, nor do you say, ah, oh, it's about a couple feet, then we'll kind of build the house like this or that. You'd be, uh, excuse me, I'm paying you about $20,000 to do that. <laughs> no, no, you're not going to do that. Right, Willard? Right, Christine? You're not going to do that. No, you're building a house. You're going to do it right there, fella. Where's your tape measure? Well, why do we not do that with the Bible? This is your standard, Christian. This is your starting point. We always accentuate the antithesis between the truth of the Bible and the other philosophies of the world. Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikh, Taoism, agnostics or atheists. It doesn't matter. Our ultimate authority is Christ and His Word. Not independent speculation or reasoning. 
not facts of your own experience, not I have peace within my heart, none of that stuff. None of that. It means nothing. It's good that it's done a change in us, but that's not the truth. This is the truth. God's word is our starting point. And you might say, well, that's circular reasoning. So? What do you think their starting point is? Their starting point is, the Bible's not the Word of God. Right? For Buddhists, it's the Eightfold Path. For Hindus, it's their own Scripture's sacred writings. For atheists, it's science. That's their starting point. That's where they begin, and that's how they work their worldview. This is our starting point. This is how we work our worldview. And just so happens, ours is right. So notice he says in verse 26, He made from one every nation of mankind. He determined their appointed times, their boundaries of habitation. God is sovereign. Determining appointed times, their boundaries, was his intention. So they inhabit the earth, and notice verse 27, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. What is he talking about here? What's he doing here? Groping means blindly feeling about for God. You know, when you're, it's dark it's in the middle of the night and, and you go, oh, I gotta, I gotta turn on that light. I know where that thing is. And you're trying to look for the doggone light. Yeah. What is that thing? It's right here somewhere, right? You ever, you ever done that before? So you're trying to find, oh, there it is. That's what that means. That word means they're groping. It's like blindly about feeling after God. But He's not far. He's present with His creation, ultimately seen in His Son, Jesus Christ. They should have known God from His great works. They should have known Him from who He is. They should have known God from His goodness and repented. He's imminent in the created order. He's spiritually personal. He can be truly known. But they suppress it. He says, in Him we live and move and exist. In other words, God is a personal being. He can be known, understood. He can be trusted. He, God made humans to have a relationship with Him. But man searches in vain because of their blindness and stubbornness. Human eyes are blinded to the light of His revelation. They don't interpret natural revelation correctly. They grope about in the darkness looking in an uncertain way. They seek after God but immediately suppress and exchange that truth which is the ultimate form of sin. Sixth implication. Unless God changes the heart or the presuppositions of the unsaved, a proper knowledge, understanding, and embracing of the goodness of Jesus Christ is practically impossible. It is. And yet, number seven, the only appropriate thing to do is to set the biblical Christian worldview with its scriptural presuppositions and authority in antithetical contrast to the worldview of the unsaved. Present it. Give them the scriptures. Present the Christian worldview. Because it's the only one that makes sense. It's the only rational, scientific understanding of how the world functions. 
because the unsaved will never interpret this correctly coming to the one true God no they grow up about in the darkness and for this they're to blame they're guilty culpable ignorance they in their rebellion suppress this knowledge they will only turn the other way notice he says as well how the unsaved are responsible because they possess the truth but they're guilty for what they do with that truth with that truth they need the glasses of special revelation to understand the truth notice he says uh, for in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said we all are his offspring why does he quote them like this he says this not that pagans have some great understanding of God but he says this because it manifests their guilt even more Paul's not commending this Stoic philosopher the Stoic philosopher is Eratus who said this he appealed to their distorted teachings as evidence that they perverted the knowledge of God so they say something they have this and then it's perverted they say this and then they pervert it because notice what he does in verse 29 being then the offspring of God if God is our creator if God is a sustainer if God is a self-sufficient sovereign one if he's the father of us all if humans are made in his image we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone in an image formed by the art and thought of man I mean really really humans are personal beings we relate to each other with with love communicating uh, trusting therefore God is our creator he can't be anything less than that he's an idol he's some thing really that doesn't make any sense he's not in temples he's not served by humans he's not represented by some gold image see they take the truth and they pervert it they take the truth and they suppress it and then they make an idol or they worship the sun or they worship the moon or they worship the stars or they worship science or they worship Mohammed or they worship the Mormon Jesus who is Satan's brother and the Father, Heavenly Father is one of many gods see how it's perverted they're groping after God and then they pervert it they have this knowledge of God and then they pervert it they always default to that so he says this bringing this up bringing this up showing them scripture showing them scripture so what should they do? repents why should they repent? repent because God is kind and because God will judge the world notice therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance God in His grace, mercy, and compassion has overlooked their culpable ignorance and rebellion. He is showing His forbearance. So repent. Let God's patience lead you to repentance. Think about it. Should God even allow things to continue to happen as they are? Should God continue to let ISIS do the things that they're doing? Should God continue to let the nations of Africa withhold food from their own people? Why does God allow this? Because He's gracious and compassionate. 
He should destroy us immediately. He should have destroyed us 8,000 years ago. But He's gracious. He's kind. And he calls sinners to come because He wants to save sinners. Repent. Let God's patience lead you to repentance. I mean, does that not lead you, Christian, to repentance even now? Isn't the fact that God is so gracious to you in Jesus Christ, doesn't that lead you to repentance even now in your Christian walk? Of course it does. Are you here and you're not a follower of Jesus? Do you not yet understand that God should wipe you off the face of the earth right now and yet He hasn't? Because He's a gracious God. And He's calling you to repent, turn away from your sin, put all your trust in Jesus. Because mind you, God holds people responsible for their will for ignorance. Turn from idols to the living true God. Repent of your evil ways. Repent of your evil understandings of who He is. Because God is the creator of all. He's the sustainer of all. He's kind to all, but He's the judge of all. He will come to judge. He hates idolatry. Repent because He's coming to judge. Having appointed the judge, notice what He says. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. The ground of repentance was the authority of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The proof that Jesus would be the one to judge all was the fact that He was raised from the dead. How did God confirm Jesus' position as judge? He brought him back to life. Jesus Christ was appointed the final judge of all mankind and the proof of it was by means of his resurrection. God attested to Jesus as the eternal son to all people by his resurrection. It proves God's call that his son will be the one to judge all. He brought him back to life. So we've gone through this. Seven implications walking through really the Old Testament that's what Paul does with the pagans the pantheists and the agnostics but what happens when you do this what happens when you present the gospel like this the same thing that happened last week well it can happen three possibilities turmoil eagerness or belief 32 to 34 now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some sneered oh come on Greeks believe dead people remain dead. There's no resurrection. So some mocked, literally sneered at Paul's message. They rejected it. They, they brought this message to the screeching halt by their reaction. Hold on a second. No, no, no resurrection. Come on. You don't want to hear this anymore. No, 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 no. Keep quiet, you. Notice though, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. They kept an open mind. There's eagerness. We shall hear you again. Not a negative reaction, but not just a positive one either. But notice, verse 33 and 34, Paul went out of their midst, but some men joining Paul believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So at least four. At least four. Maybe, maybe there's more. 
Now, a church wasn't developed here. We don't hear about a church until later on in Paul's ministry. But look, here, here's a fact. Whether with Jews or Gentiles, God brings the birth and growth of His church through the proclamation of His Word, the Gospel. That's how He does it. We confront them with their need to repent and believe because of God's great kindness and to sinners and, and also imminent judgment is coming. So as I said to you at the end of the day, when all is said and done, what, what does it come down to? So we look at this passage, what does it mean? What does it come down to? The three practical applications. Humans are totally unable to embrace the truth of Christianity. They're unable. Number two, we must give a consistent, gracious proclamation of the gospel. We're consistent and we're gracious. We're firm and we're kind. Three, as we're speaking the gospel, we hold tenaciously, we rely firmly on God's grace. Because you give them the evidences, you give them the evidences of the, of the very gospel itself, the scriptures itself. And yet they have to come to a place where they embrace Christ and the evidences that point to Christ. Friday was one of the hardest days, Jerome. Probably the top two. I didn't get the belief. But I got the eagerness. I got the turmoil in that order. The eagerness of such joy. Talking, I won't tell you his name. I'll call him G. Talking with G. About to leave. We start talking. And the very things that I told you this morning were the very things I had the opportunity to tell him on Friday. You know, he asked the question, what do you say about the person who lives like way out in Africa and they've never heard the gospel? God's going to send them to hell? How do you make sense of that? I was able to talk about this whole thing about, you know, everyone knows God. He's sitting there looking at me, just eagerness and listening. So praising the Lord over that. And then it faced turmoil. Started talking with another guy, younger guy. Not volatile. You know, it's um, when you are in a conversation with somebody, and it's just happening so fast. And and then after it happens, you go back, man, why didn't I say this? Why, why didn't I think of this? Why didn't that happen? You ever had that happen? That's what happened with this guy. It just happened so fast, rapidly, and as you've probably heard people bring up, well, so, you know, Leviticus says you're supposed to kill homosexuals. And he misunderstood what I said. He thought I said you're supposed to kill homosexuals. He got volatilely mad. He threw me out of his little shop. And physically was pushing me out of the shop. And as he's pushing me out, I said, I did not say that you're putting words in my mouth. That's not what I said. You're putting words in my mouth. 
and he just started swearing and cursing at me. I told him, I said, I'm sorry that I offended you. I'm sorry. Later that night, I, I remembered I had paper in my car, so I thought I'd write him a note and told him, Dear M, I'll call him M, um, please accept my apology for offending you. No, I do not believe homosexuals should be killed. Sincerely, Jim Masters. He wasn't there. I was going to give it to him. He wasn't there. His shop was still open. But he wasn't there. So I just left it there and I left and put it there on his the desk and I left. You'll face turmoil. Face eagerness. We're praying that we'll face belief too, huh? Tough day. Father, we're thankful that you're you're much more powerful than the will of man. Father, we're thankful that you're you're greater than the hearts of people who are against you. Realizing that humans in and of themselves are unable to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but help us to graciously and lovingly and yet consistently proclaim this gospel may we firmly hold to the fact that it's only your grace that can change the heart of sinners. This time, if you would, let's take a few moments and just ponder what we've seen in God's Word. Maybe questions have come up now. You want to text those to me? Feel free to do that. A few moments of silence for you to think and to ponder what we've seen here in Acts 17, and then we'll, we'll do our time of giving and singing our last two songs in prayer.
You'd stand. We'll sing you are the way. And by the way, those of you who pray on Friday for us, it's been me for the past, by myself for the past few weeks. Thank you for doing that. I really need you to do that. That was a really hard day. And yet a great day, but a hard day. So thank you for praying. And if more of you pray, I, I would welcome that all the more. Because it's needed. Those people need that. God without hope in this world Then the glorious light of your gospel broke in The Father stood up from his throne Opened his arms as he called out my name Grace irresistible drew me And opened my eyes to see you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, Jesus. The only way, and the only truth, you are my life, Jesus. the source of new life, the giver of every good thing, withholding nothing, you lavish your kindness on me, you emptied yourself, became poor, humbled and poured out to death, and now highly exalted above all your name alone can save you are the way you are the truth you are the life jesus the only way the only truth you are the life jesus you are the way you are the truth are the life Jesus the only way and the only truth you are my life Jesus you are the
the truth, you are the life, Jesus, the only way, the only truth, you are my life, Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, Jesus, the only way, the only truth, you are my life, Jesus. We will glorify the King of kings, we will glorify the Lamb. We will glorify the Lord of lords, who is the great I Am. Lord Jehovah reigns in majesty, we will bow before His throne. We will worship Him in righteousness. We will worship Him alone. He is Lord of heaven, Lord of earth. He is Lord of all who live. He is Lord above the universe. All praise to Him we give. Hallelujah to the King of Kings. Praise you, Jesus Christ. Praise you, our Lord of our lives. We praise you. You are incarnated yourself, becoming like us. What grace and compassion. When we were dead, you opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And this is our motivation. As you open our eyes, let us be faithful to proclaim this truth to, your, to people who may become your people, to anyone and everyone to hear that you're a gracious and kind God calling them to repent because of your kindness and because of your judgment to come thank you praise you we give you the thanks that you deserve amen
Somewhere